James. Um, today is Palm Sunday, um, and I know it's kind of weird to follow the calendar online, but uh, we are we are doing that uh, for for the church. And um, I decided to give a short, uh, relatively shorter message, but uh, something that is relevant to the topic today. Today is the beginning of Passion Week, and it is Palm Sunday. And what does that mean for us? Uh, as the church. And here in our passage, as you just read, it's a very famous passage. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's called the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And the scene is this, Jesus is coming down through the Jordan to Jerusalem and it's Passover season. So everybody's going to Jerusalem. Everybody is headed there. And it's a large crowd. And so in this large crowd, Jesus is there and he's, he's walking uh, or actually riding in on a donkey or a colt someone's colt that was tied up and he's riding in into this uh, scene uh, going into Jerusalem and it's a large crowd. And as you see here in verse 37, he says this, that as he was drawing near already on the way down from Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so they are praising him. They're saying, blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. As Jesus comes in and he comes in this scene into Jerusalem, they are giving him the ultimate praise. If you look at other passages in the gospels where it gives you account of this scene, for example, Mark chapter 11 adds, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna literally means save. It means save now. And so if you look carefully at these two places, these two, these two verses here, um, these are actually quotes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 25 to 26, they say to God, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Save. They save us now, Hosanna. And so this is... Uh, a praise given to someone on high, a praise given to a king. In John chapter 12, it also gives us a little bit of more information on this, on what they are doing here as they come into Jerusalem. And John tells us that they are waving palm branches, palm branches. And I guess this is why we call it Palm Sunday, because as Jesus is coming in and they're praising him, blessed are you, blessed are you, they're waving palm branches. Now, what does that mean? Palm branches uh, were a symbol of, of national or military victory. Uh, it, palm branches, when they waved them, it, it meant that they, they had won. It's, it's a sign of victory and uh, a sign of triumph. And so they are coming in, they're praising him, save, save us now, God. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed are you, blessed are you. It's waving palm branches. And the third thing that they did here in verse 36 is this. We're told in our passage that as you rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. They spread their cloaks on the road. Now, what is that about? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 13, you read what this is about. They do the same thing there. And when you spread your cloak or when you spread your garment uh, on the road, it was a symbol of you throwing yourself on the ground. It was a sign of submission a sign of submission, that you are bowing down before the person that you are throwing the cloak before. And the reason they did this is, it, well, one thing, it's, it's safer than you throwing your body before them. You might get trampled on by the horses or, or the crowd or whatever the case. So they threw their cloaks, they, they threw their, their clothes uh, before this person that they would honor and praise. And it was a symbol to say basically this, 
we place you under your feet. We place ourselves under your feet. That's what it means. Now, what's going on here? Jesus is coming in. They're praising him. Save us, O Lord. You blessed be you who have come in the name of the Lord. They're waving palm branches, signs of victory. They're throwing their cloaks before him as he comes in. What's going on in here is basically, it's basically worship. It's worship. It's worship that's fit for a God. And it's worship that's fit for a God who is a king. He's a king. They are treating Jesus Christ as a king. And the irony of this is this, that as he comes into Jerusalem, it's festive. It's a sign of triumph. They, they feel that, that they, the people feel that their king has come and now things are going to be better. Not knowing that everyone around Jesus might have been kind of happy or in a festive mood. Everyone except Jesus himself. And I think if you look to see Jesus' face, I think his face would look kind of somber, uh, if not even sad. Because you look at verse 41 in our passage, and it says, what did he do? He wept. He wept over the city of Jerusalem, right? And so this is an irony here. Here comes Jesus, their king, and what they thought it meant for Jesus to be their king was different, I think, from what what, what Jesus thought himself. The people's expectations from Jesus at this point were different from, I think, what Jesus was expecting. And that's why you have a contrast in emotion here. There's praise by the people on one hand, and then there is this sort of somberness, I think, on Jesus' hand, right? And, and it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, four days later, he's going to be crucified on the cross. Four days, just four days from this. And I think some of the people were there at the cross. But the, the thing is, the, the tone of the people's voice has changed, right? Here in our passage, they're saying, hail Jesus, hail Jesus, you're the king. Four days later, he's on the cross and people are yelling, nail Jesus, nail Jesus, crucify him. And it was a quick change, I think, from the response of the people. And I think part of the reason is because this, that the expectations of what a king was to the people were different from the expectations of what God was for them. And they just couldn't understand that, right? It it stumbled them, I think. It stumbled many of them. And here's a question that I think that we need to answer. Because oftentimes as we believe Christ or as we believe in God, oftentimes we come in with our own expectations. We think that this is what God is and this is what he should do and this is how he should respond, especially to me or to those he loves or to the situation around us. But what would you do if your expectations of what God should be doing is different from what God thinks he should be doing? Would you still follow this God? Would you be one of the crowd that says, hail Jesus, hail Jesus, but then four days later say, nail Jesus, nail Jesus. He hasn't met my expectations. Would you still follow him if you knew that the God that you were following was different from what you had expected, right? And I think it's hard to think about this, uh, especially in our culture today, um, following a king. He is a king. He is a king. But you might have a hard time relating with this because if you live in the United States like we do, we don't, we don't have a king, do we? We, we, we have a president. We, we have a monarchy. Uh, we don't have a monarchy. We have a democracy, a, dem- a democratic republic, to be more specific. In fact, I, I'd say that in our culture, we, we don't necessarily like kings uh, or any kind of, I guess, personal authority for that matter, because there have been a lot of messed up kings in our history. Oftentimes when you hear about kings, you, you hear about 
tyrants. Uh, sometimes they didn't make anything right. They, they did more wrong than they did good. Sometimes they even abused power and authority. And today we, we live in a culture where we feel like really, to be honest, we don't, we don't really need kings today, do we? We don't want uh, someone dictating to us how to live, how to be, because we live in a culture of liberty. We live in a culture of individualism. We live in a culture of independence, where everybody generally gets to decide what they want to do and how they want to be. We don't need a king over us. We are, in fact, our own kings. We like to rule over ourselves. We love our independence. We love being in control. That's how I think our culture is. And the irony of us today is this, that in our situation with this pandemic going on and being uh, some of us quarantined and, and trying to be faithful to our self-distancing and wondering what's going on out there and what's going to happen uh, with our economy and with our loved ones uh, and, and praying and so on and so forth, I think the irony is that more than ever, our perceived need or our perceived sense of independence, our perceived sense of being in control is now being tested. Um, it's being revealed. More than ever, I think we are starting to realize, in fact, how dependent we, we really are. Uh, how, in fact, we, 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 we just don't have real control. And I think in this situation, uh, these things, these false perceptions of what we think in our lives are becoming more and more real of a reality to us. And to be honest, it, it scares us to really not have control, right? To really not that be that independent, to really have to rely on, on not just people, but you know, society, culture, government, and so on and so forth. It, it can be kind of nerve wracking. So I know that some of you might be thinking, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really have a king in my life. There, there, there really is no such thing in our, in our culture. But what if you thought of it this way? As people, we, we tend to live for something. It's, it's how we build. We, we always, we need to live for something. We need to live for something or really it's not worth living. And that something usually is something that gives my life significance, uh, purpose, some kind of meaning some direction. And for some of you, it's your families, it's your relationships, it's your children. For others of you, maybe it's your career, it's your job, your vocation, or, or maybe it's simple, more simple, maybe it's just money, vacations, or food, or, or whatever the case is. The point is, as people, we all live for something. And what you live for is what you love. And what you love is also what you live for. And whatever that is, you know the reality, or you quickly begin to know the reality, you don't really control it, at least not completely, at least, at least not all of it. And that's why we are oftentimes an anxious bunch of people. If anything, some of these things end up controlling you. We're not always the master of the things that we think we have, but oftentimes they end up mastering us. So for example, if you're a parent and you have children, and children are your king, right, children are what you live for, then you're only going to be as happy as your children are happy. And you're not your own. Children don't serve you. You are serving them. You are working hard, serving them 24-7, some of you, right? How do you know if children are your king? Because when you feel like you've let them down, 
When you feel like you've been a bad parent and you feel like you failed, you are utterly crushed and you are utterly in tears. Some of you beat yourself up and it's so unforgiving and it's punishing uh, to think of it this way. For others of you, maybe another example would be, for example, money, right? Money is important. It's a good thing. But if you live for money, if money is your king, so to speak, then you're only going to be as happy as the size of your bank account. And so you'll do everything you can maybe to secure that, to, to grow it, to, to, to you know, make a profit from it. Sometimes, even if it means compromising principles. And that's how Jesus says we serve the God of money. How do you know if money is your king? Here's how you know. If your account is high, so are you. But if your account is low, so are you. You didn't master or control money. It kind of controls you in this way, doesn't it? And there's no grace there. There's no mercy. There's no, there's no forgiveness. There's, it's just money. It, it's, it's very cold. It's, very, it's just mathematics. You either have a lot or you don't. And if you live for that, you're going to be up and down, up and down. It doesn't serve you in this way. You serve it. And that's what happens when you make money in God. What does the Bible say? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what you live for then is what you really love. And what you really love is what you will worship. Maybe you don't have a king, a, a physical king, a, a monarchy that we live in. Maybe we don't have one. But the Bible seems to say, John Calvin used to say, is that if we don't have a king, you'll definitely make one. Whatever it is, you will crown it, you will worship it, you will serve it, and, and you can't help it. Because that's how we are made. We were made to live for something. We were made to live for a king, in a sense, for a king. And the Bible says that whatever you live for, if you live for any other king other than this King Jesus, whether it's money, whether it's work, whether it's relationships, right? If you live for any other king rather than the one we read about here, you will be crushed. There will be no forgiveness. And it will all be a source of anxiety for you. And I think, again, especially in this pandemic era that we're living in, probably a historical moment in our lives, which we don't even fully realize yet. In this time of uncertainty and, and fear and anxiety and worry, uh, our idols are being revealed. What we thought we, we had secure is now threatened. And how we're responding to this is now being revealed. In other words, our false kings, the things that we've been living for, the things that we've been following are now slowly being kind of taken away from us or at least kept from us for a moment. And they're being revealed in our lives now, right? These false kings, they're being revealed. And I think God is showing us some of this. Um, here, I want to give you three reasons then why instead of following a false king, why are you to follow this king? Just three reasons, okay? First, one reason is because he's a king on a colt or he's a king on a donkey. The second reason is because he's also a king on a cross. And the third reason is, is because he's also a king on the throne, all right? Just three reasons really quickly, and let's look at this very carefully. First, as you look at this king that's coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, immediately you notice he's different. Why? because he's riding in on a colt or, or a donkey, um, some beast of burden. 
that exactly is not that not that's not exactly a royal picture isn't it most kings wouldn't come in on that kind of animal uh, at least a big horse right no king rides in uh, on a donkey or a colt uh, and it's interesting you think people who are worshiping or praising him you think they would notice this why is he riding on this couldn't they get him a better animal but they don't seem to say it. But he's riding in on a colt, and, and that tells you something already. It's, it's humbling to do this. It tells you that he's a different kind of king, all right? Uh, and what's so different is that, here's the thing. Everybody this day uh, were coming into Jerusalem, and they had these kinds of animals, these colts or these donkeys. And on top of these animals, they would carry like a little lamb, a little goat or some kind of animal, which they would use to make a sacrifice in the temple at Jerusalem. That's where they were going to make a sacrifice. And they carried all their little animals, their sacrifices on animals like donkeys, colts, and, and small beasts of burden like this. But you notice in our passage, Jesus doesn't bring in any kind of little animal on that donkey, does he? He rode in on a donkey. And it tells us this, and you know this already, he was the lamb. He was that sacrifice. He was the one, and he, that's the reason he comes in on this cult. This king is already different. He didn't come in to Jerusalem like a tyrant to master his people. He came in to give his life for his people. He came in uh, to die for his people. And that's different from most kings that we know. This is a king I think that you could trust. If he's going to give his life for you, why wouldn't you be able to trust him with everything else? Isn't this the kind of king that you don't just serve? You don't just say, oh, I, I believe, but you love and, and you worship and you follow, okay? And so that's a good reason to follow him. Many of us know Jesus as our Savior, and you can confess to yourself and to others that, that Jesus saved your life, that he loves you, so on and so forth. Many of us know him as Savior, but the question we're looking at here is this. Do you also know him as your king, the humble king who rode in on a donkey? All right, that's one reason. Second reason is this. He's also the king on a cross. Four days after this, this king Jesus who rode in on a donkey is now hanging from a cross, okay? If a king riding in on a donkey is humbling, then a king dying on a cross, that, that's embarrassing, okay? That's, that's embarrassing. Kings usually wield power and authority. Kings usually came in looking strong and powerful for the people. But this king, four days later, is now going to be hanging on a cross. He doesn't look strong to anybody. He looks weak. He looks powerless. There doesn't seem to be any kind of authority that he's wielding from, from the cross. And it's not the kind of king that people expected. They didn't expect him to come in on a donkey, and they didn't expect their king to be dying on a cross. They wanted him to rule. They wanted him to make things better now. But that's not what they see. That's not what they see. And I think many of them were stumbled. But here's the reason I think that the king on the cross is good news for us. It's good news for us, okay? Because kings came in and they usually brought in judgment with the sword, right? With their power. That's what they did. And yet Jesus here, the king on the cross, he bears the judgment. He bore our judgment. Kings were supposed to be strong, at least look strong for their people. But this king Jesus, he is strong. But the way he's strong is by becoming weak for his people. He dies for them. And I don't know any other king 
whether real king or whether uh, metaphorically a king, whether it's money or reputation or parenting or success or in life, I don't know any other king that will die for you, right? That if you mess up, they're not going to be so forgiving. But here's Jesus Christ, the king on the donkey, who's also the king on the cross. And he is the only king that dies so that he could be forgiving to you. So that when you mess up, you receive grace. He dies so that he could free you from the tyranny of all the other false gods that we follow. And that's another good reason to follow him. Okay? So he's the king on the donkey. He's the king on the cross. And last but not least, really quickly, he's the king on a throne. And this is another great reason to follow Jesus Christ. Because we know this from after the Good Friday, on Sunday, this Sunday, Jesus rises on the third day. He's not dead anymore. He's alive. He's not a king that just died for you. He's also a king that lives for you. And where is this Jesus now? He's seated now on his throne, right? Next to the Father, with everything under his feet. The humble king, the Lamb of God, now reigns for us. How do I know this? Look at Paul, or listen to Paul, what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. He says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? We now have a king who's not only humble on a donkey, uh, humble on the cross, but now lives for us right on the throne. And what does Paul say he's doing there on the throne? He doesn't just live for us, but he says this. He is interceding for us at this very moment. He's interceding for us. That basically means this, that King Jesus is praying for you. He is praying for you always. And that's comforting, you know. That, that, that has to be encouraging, especially at this time where there's a lot of praying going on for the uncertainties and the things that we're going through right now in the world. But how comforting is it to know that the Son of God, right, the risen Lord, the King of kings, is actually always praying for you, praying for you, praying for his church. And I'm not sure if God's going to listen to my prayers all the time, but I can be absolutely sure that if Jesus is praying for me as the King, then I can be sure that his Father is listening. His Father is listening and will answer his prayers in his timing. I hope that's encouraging to you, but that's also, I think, a great reason to follow this king, okay? So those three reasons to follow him, he's the king on a donkey, he's the king on a cross, and last but not least, but he's the king on a throne. And I want to say this, if you know Jesus as your savior, but you don't know him as your king, then you don't really know Jesus fully, because you can't understand who Jesus is unless you also understand him as your king as your king, your personal king. Now here's the question. How do we follow this king? If he's your king, what do we do with him? And I'll just give you three things, okay? Firstly, this is very quick. The first thing you do if you follow this king is you worship him. You worship him. Now let me be very clear about this. To worship Jesus as your king doesn't mean you believe in him, okay? Worship is more than just believing that he's there and that he exists. Worship means something that you love. It's easy to worship. You and I were made for worship. You can tell what you love by how you talk, how you act, how you respond. And when you worship Jesus Christ, you express that with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. He is the one, not just you believe in, but that you love 
you hold dear to your heart, and you place him above all things. That's what it means to worship him as your king, okay? If you want to follow this king, the second thing you do is this. You obey the king. You obey the king. This king is different from all the other kings that we kind of know. He may be different. He did give his life. He did live for you. He does pray for you, but he's still the king. And if you remember when Jesus rose from the dead, what did he say? He says, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. And that means this, that authority means the right to be listened to. If he has all authority in heaven and earth, it means he has the right to be listened to and to be obeyed, to be obeyed, okay? And I think many of us have a hard time with this. You think Jesus loves you and you love him and you've been forgiven of your sins, but do you follow him as your king? Are you obeying him? And oftentimes we have a problem with this. We only obey when we think it makes sense to obey, right? If God tells us to do something, we always ask why. What's the purpose? And if it makes sense to us, then yes, we'll obey. Friends, that's not giving a king his authority, okay? That's not unconditional authority. All you're doing is you're giving consent. You're giving consent to obeying something what you agree on or what you think can be, uh, is able to do on your part. You just happen to agree what God is asking for. That's not authority. And that's not you uh, giving him authority as king if that's, if that's what we're doing. But we're called to obey him. We're called to obey him unconditionally. Now, how do you do this? But look at the king, right? He's the king who gave his life for you. He's the king who lives for you. He's the king who's praying for you. He's the king who knows what's best for you. He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And so you can trust him when he tells you to do something. And you can obey him, even if you don't really know why, because you trust in the Lord who gave his life for you. That's what it means to follow him as king. We worship him, we obey him, and last but not least, we hope in him. And this is something I think we more and more, as the days go on, long, long days, this is something we need. Uh, we need hope. And the people in our passage, they hoped in him. They did, okay? But they were let down, I think. And it's not because Jesus let them down. It's because they hoped in Jesus for the wrong reasons. They had the wrong expectations. They wanted victory now. They wanted glory right now. They wanted to skip the pain and skip the suffering and skip the hard work. But what you see is Jesus is the very opposite. For him, it was suffering first. It was the pain first, all the way to a cross. And then it was glory. It's the very reverse of what people want. And I think if you think this is hard, I think it's hopeful. Think about this. Because if Jesus went through the horrible injustice of the crucifixion, and he was able to turn the crucifixion something for your good, for my good, and then he comes out on top in the resurrection, what does that mean? It, it means that he can take what looks like a big mess in our life, and turn them around into opportunities for real growth, for real blessing, right? If Jesus went to the cross and went through all the suffering first and then came out on top, it means that he could take our failures and, and our weaknesses and he could use them for instruments to grow us in his grace. If Jesus went through the hardest thing, I think even harder than the COVID virus, the crucifixion, and then he rose from the dead, it means that he can take the hardest things in your life and use it to refine you 
with loving hands. You see, all of us, whether you believe or not, we experience this world from life to death. But if Jesus went from death to life, to resurrection life, what that means is this, that he now has the power to reverse this order. That what looks like the end is actually now the beginning. And if you follow him, we too now go from death to this new life, eternal one. Listen to what um, CCF counselor Paul Tripp says this once. He, uh, he said this, quote, Be careful how you make sense of life. What looks like a disaster may in fact be grace. What looks like the end may be the beginning. What looks hopeless may be God's instrument to give you real and lasting hope. Your father is committed to taking what seems so bad and turning it into something that is very, very good, end quote. This is our hope as you follow a crucified Lord who is now raised on the third day, as we follow this king who comes in a donkey. And Jesus can make good on this promise because he's risen and now he's sitting on his throne. And if you read Revelation 21, what does he say? Behold, I am making everything new. Let's continue to hope in Christ as we work through this moment of darkness in, in the life of where we're living and what we're going through. But I'll pray and I continue to pray that God gives you the faith to trust and to continue to follow this King, no matter what your circumstances. Let's pray.